0: Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. We bring you leaders acting on their environmental values because too many people told me, I want to act, but if others don't, then what I do won't matter. We're here to make it obvious that you're not alone. You're part of a global community, a majority. Also, too many people told me, doing small things doesn't make enough of a difference and big things take too much work. Action matters more than the size you start with. You'll hear how action motivates guests from small things to doing big things. You won't find guilt, blame, doom, gloom, or telling people what to do. You will find leading without relying on authority, which brings what I found missing from acting on environmental values. Joy, discovery, growth, community, meaning, purpose, value, sharing. With global demand for environmental action, I bet you'll see that acting on your values doesn't distract from your life and career. Follow in these leaders' footsteps, and beyond enjoying the environment, I bet you'll see promotions, raises, more loyalty and trust in your relationships, and more. On April 3rd, the Leadership in the Environment podcast held its first expert panel featuring Patagonia's director, Victor Stanley, TED speaker and NYU professor, Robin Nagel, and TEDx speaker and founder of Lead Palestine, RJ Khalaf, and myself as moderator. You'll hear deeper bios in the recording. This panel was like an interactive three-way TED talk, You hear their perspectives and vibrant stories, them interacting plus taking questions from the audience. You'll hear their rich lives and the leadership that they're acting created. Notice that they're leaders first who happen to work on their worlds, on their environment second. I think that's something missing from the environmental movement. People who are effective leaders bringing what they bear to the environment. You'll hear what motivates them, how they stay engaged, their origin stories. You'll find few people with as much passion as they have. Many people talk and debate They act and you'll hear the joy that it creates. I heard not a hint of guilt, blame, doom, gloom, giving up or despondence, just passion. You'll hear their answers to questions from the audience. I think you'll be inspired. So let's listen. You know, I I wanna mention one thing that people, when people talk about the environment, they often talk about things to do. The leadership part for me is not just doing these things, but enjoying doing these things. I'm doing everything I can not to talk about how much I love cooking all this stuff that I put out here. (laughs) Because I find great joy in it. And not just like doing stuff, but enjoying doing stuff. And what I want to share is not just behaviors, but how much fun it is and how much I'm connecting with people and things like that. I hope that's something that comes out too. Almost like curious: How many people here shop at Patagonia? And how many people like specifically go to Patagonia because of Patagonia's practices, that you know about these things. It's not just random. So all of you. All of you who shop there, shop there. That's a big reason for it. And how many people here throw stuff away in the New York City uh, sanitation system? We all do, right? Do we put an effort into throw away less? Is that like something that we all do? Isn't it a pain when others don't? I'm oh, sorry. I, I don't want to get started. <laughs> but I want to talk about some of the stuff that the panelists do. All right. So I want to introduce the panelists. So I'm going to say uh, a few words about the panelists what you, read and, uh, what, what you might not have read before, and then I'm going to ask each of the panelists to spend three to five minutes describing themselves, and then we'll do questions for them. After the panelists speak for a while, then we'll take questions from the audience. So please prepare your questions and be curious to ask them stuff at the end. And then there'll be time for all for everyone to schmooze at the end if they want more food. Everyone's been to panels before. so um, So Vincent Stanley... Co-author with Yvonne Chouinard of of a book called The Responsible Company has been at Patagonia since its beginning in 1973, including executive roles as head of sales or marketing. Informally, he is Patagonia's chief storyteller. He helped develop the Footprint Chronicles, the company's interactive website that outlines the social and environmental impact of its products, the Common Threads Partnership, and Patagonia Books. He serves as the company director of Patagonia Philosophy and is a visiting fellow at the Yale School of Management. He's also a poet whose work has appeared in the best American poetry. Not mentioned is that I believe your birthday is tomorrow. <laughs> you know, from our first call. Uh, Robin Nagel's book, Picking Up, there's much more to the title than that, but it's what I have here. Okay. is an ethnographic, is an ethnography of the New York City's Department of Sanitation based on a decade of work with the department, including working as a uniformed sanitation worker. She is also clinical professor of anthropology and environmental studies at NYU School of Liberal Studies here with research in the new interdisciplinary field of discard studies. She considers the category of material culture known generically as waste with a specific emphasis on the infrastructure and organizational demands that municipal garbage imposes on urban areas. Since 2006 she has been the Department of Sanitation of New York's anthropologist in residence, an unsalaried position structured around her projects, uh, structured around several projects. Her TED Talk gives a quick review, a quick overview, and more details about her work. If you work at NYU and you have a TED Talk, you don't have to go and work with the Department of Sanitation.
1: But if I hadn't worked with sanitation, I wouldn't have a TED Talk.
0: Yeah, that's why I feel like it's like.
1: (laughs) NYU is, okay, it's great. I love my job at NYU, but that's not particular, like, so what? It's working with sanitation that was, that's the interesting part.
0: I agree, and that's why I brought it up. It's like a lot of professors, I think, wouldn't, well, I don't want to talk about other professors, but it's, uh, I really admire that. I think that's the future. Uh, now I'm getting too much into one. I hope that <laughs> Let's comes talk up. to RJ.
2: Yeah.
0: RJ Clough is a senior at NYU pursuing a degree in global liberal studies with a concentration in politics, rights, and development, and a minor in social entrepreneurship, the class he took with me. Recently named one of NYU's most influential students by Washington Square News, he is the president of the, of the NYU Muslim Students Association and is a Dalai Lama fellow. RJ is the founder and director of Lead Palestine, an organization that aims to inspire, motivate, and empower the next generation of Palestine's youth through a hands-on and fun, leadership-based summer camp. So I wonder if I, that's a, a bit of an introduction, but I wonder if each of you could take three or five minutes to describe yourselves and maybe what projects you're working on now. Maybe we could start here and go there. Start with Vincent.
2: Um, My background, I'm Evo Chouinard's nephew. And uh, so I was uh, 20 years old and working in a car wash in Southern California during the recession and getting about five hours a week of work at $1.25 an hour. And I got a postcard from my grandmother, whose English was her second language. She wrote these wonderful run-on sentences, and she says, why don't you ask your uncle for a job? I hear he pays his men $3 an hour. (laughs) So um, that turned out to be not true. Only the highest paid hammer makers made $3 an hour. But um, because I did not, it it was then not Patagonia, it was a climbing equipment company um, that did about $300,000 a year in sales. There were about 10 employees. And as the only non-surfer, I was the only person to stay in the office uh, when the waves were firing, and therefore the only person to answer the phone. So they tapped me on the shoulder and said, "You're sales manager," <laughs> which uh, a job I had intended to take for six months and then go travel has uh, lasted 45 years. And what's kept me there, I think, is a is a, vocationally I'm a writer. I'm not a businessman. But I have actually been a businessman, I find, for four and a half decades. But what has kept me there I think is fundamentally because I am a writer, I've been interested in how this culture survived from the it's basically the same culture we were when we were making what we regarded as the best climbing equipment in the world to this culture that's now a billion dollar a year. Clothing company. So it interests me what survived. And also it interests me the journey that we've all been on together. It's, it's almost like stumbling into virtue. We did not decide to be good guys. We kept learning that things we were doing or having done on our behalf in the supply chain were either harming the environment or harming people. And What we have done as a company is essentially to address those ills one by one and then to develop that as really part of the culture and part of what keeps us going. When we get to that, when we talk about leadership without leadership, when we talk about leadership, self-directed leadership, I think the sense of agency that our employees feel, that they felt when they were making climbing hammers and that they feel when they're making rain jackets, that has really... uh, kept us going, so uh, that's not my project, but it's sort of what brings me here.
1: Okay, thank you. Um, When I was about 10, my dad took me camping in the Adirondack Mountains, and we traveled a path that to me looked like, it was a forest that looked like we were the first human beings to ever exist in that landscape. Remember, I was 10. Okay, this was long ago. And we arrived at the campsite, which is a lean to. Those of you who don't know the style of Adirondack camping, it's a three walled hut with a sloped roof. And in this case, it looked out over an absolutely beautiful lake that was at the bottom of these very steep sides of, of the mountains that were in that area. And it really was a utopia. And it happened to be a beautiful day, and it's just me and my father, and it was exquisite. Until, right behind the lean-to, I discovered the garbage that hikers and campers who preceded us had been too lazy to take with them. In other words, they didn't pack out what they had packed in. I was, um, I have yet to find the word that describes the depth of my astonishment and rage, gobsmacked is a word I've learned recently that kind of fits. but. there's a humor to that word, and this is not humorous. Um, and the question I had in that moment was: who did they think was going to clean up after them? This was miles from a road. There was no truck that was going to come in and take all this out. And it was a in my memory, it was about, let's say, 40 feet by 40 feet, right? But it had that signature smell that garbage has. Something tangy and sour and sort of cloying, and there there were there was one sneaker. I remember one sneaker. Like, what happened to the other, like, did he, I, I don't know, um, but that question, who was going to clean, clean up after the people who had not, didn't care enough about this, this place, this place, okay, there's someone who litters on the street, all right, that's bad enough, but to leave behind your trash in the forest was, I, I still don't understand it. I have since learned it's not uncommon. Perhaps that's a whole separate conversation. But so that was the seed. And it it, uh, stayed dormant sort of for years. But wherever I've ever traveled in the world, my question is, who's cleaning up after this city, after this us, however the us is defined? And here in New York, who cleans up after us in a municipal context is the Department of Sanitation. They only do household waste and nonprofits, so commercial waste and construction debris, those go to private carters. But if when we say garbage and we imagine the stuff that we generate in our own homes, that's what the DSNY collects. And I was intrigued by them, but it wasn't until I met Meryl Ukeles, who's the artist in residence for the Department of Sanitation. I heard her give a talk while I was an undergraduate at NYU, and I realized you could be a woman and you could be very serious, and you could make garbage your focus. And it didn't have to be boutique or sort of cutesy. It could be very, very serious. So after graduate school, I uh, was asked, I started working at NYU and um, proposed uh, some classes to teach through GSAS, which is where I was working at the time. And every class I came up with, the fellow whose program I was working with said, look, we have people who teach that. Finally he said, what's your dream class? What do you want to teach about more than anything else? And I said, oh, that's easy, garbage. He said, good, give me a syllabus. So that was my class, Garbage in Gotham, which I have taught many times and love. Um, and then that spun into um, what became a s- wonderful relationship with the Department of Sanitation, and I can say more about that as we go along. But. Uh, the The Adirondack camping, I call that the once upon a time story. like wh- where did it begin? this obs- the obsession with fascination with and and truly lifelong passion to understand mechanics around and and our own sort of cognitive and emotional and um, personal relationship with the the things that we discard and the act of discarding and the mental habits that allow it to be such a common, simple practice for all of us. Enough said for now. (laughs) Um,
3: Hey, everyone. Um, Thanks for having me, Josh. And it's a pleasure to be with both of you. Um, So kind of as I um, set to graduate in a few weeks, I'm just kind of thinking a lot of different things. Why am I here in this moment? Um, I think there's like a, a few different, stories and processes that led me to, to this moment right here, but um, the, one that's, the one that's coming to mind the most is um, taking me back to when I was 10 years old, uh, sitting back home in Las Vegas um, in a supercuts, um, And um, the hairdresser was asking me, what are your summer plans? And I say, I'm going to the blood. And she, she responds, the what? I say the blood. Um, and she's like, what does that mean? I said it means my homeland in Arabic. It's where my family's from. And she goes, "Oh, where's that?" And I say, uh, "Pakistan." And for all I knew, I was Arab, I was Muslim, but I'm not from Pakistan. I'm I'm from Palestine. And so when my mom heard that, she almost like beat me on the back of the head right in, right in that moment. Um, and so that kind of began on a journey of like a big like, identity formation process because we were set to go to Palestine in a few days. And so when I landed in Tel Aviv's Ben Gurion International Airport, um, let alone I didn't know I was Palestinian or Palestinian existed, I also didn't know Israel existed. So um, you, know, you can imagine my astonishment as like, a 10-year-old like seeing like, this conflict and this occupation that's gone on for so long, like firsthand having no idea. And, um, and we're, we're, we're driving from um, Tel Aviv into the West Bank, into my family's hometown where um, I see this like massive wall that separates like settlements and slums. And I'm like, mom, like what's going on? Um, and she goes, you don't know about the occupation. I don't even know what occupation meant. So, <laughs> I mean, it was just a complete culture shock. So that summer, it's like, I meet my cousins and they tell me everything. This is, this is our country, this is our story. And I, I get decked out in Palestinian swag. I buy flags, keychains, mugs, everything. I mean, consumerism, I buy everything. I like, forget about waste, like anything with Palestine on it, it's mine. Um, and so that kind of began this process where I was just like unequivocally passionate about the Palestinian cause. Um, so we started to go back summer after summer. Um, and it was, when I was 14, I volunteered in a refugee camp for the first time um, with my mom's cousin. And it was there I was offered my first cigarette by a 12-year-old kid named Odeyi. Um And so in that moment, I was totally jolted. I, I just thought, like, this is funny. Arab smoke, right? So it's just <laughs> whatever, like a kid smoking. But that moment still sits with me today. I mean, that, that, that memory of my first cigarette by a 12-year-old kid. Um, I said no, because I took dare, so don't worry. Um, but um, kind of in that process, I began to look at the, the causes that lead to such things. Like, why is a kid smoking a cigarette at 12 years old? And you look at the conditions um, of these refugee camps, where there's a 70% unemployment rate, and zero police presence, and high drug abuse. Um, you know, the United Nations talk about a situation of hopelessness. So I began to look for solutions. And um, one of the solutions I found was leadership training. So I suppose
0: we're going to talk about that later
3: today. So I guess that's why I'm
0: here. So thank you. Now, each of you went back really far. I mean, right away, you went back to decades back. And when I think of environmental issues, I think a lot, it's not, it would be nice if things like, Next year, we're done and fixed. But that's not general, I don't think anyone's expecting that. How do you deal with the, the long term nature of this? If, if you have goals, how long it takes to reach them, or if you don't have specific goals, that things take a long time because a lot of people, I feel like if it's not going to happen soon, they're like, I'm going to go do, I'm not going to worry about that. Is the time scale something that you guys think about? How do you deal with it?
1: I'm uh, going to be alive in five years. I hope. Uh-huh. <laughs> Ten years, maybe even. I hope. Whatever. So issues of waste are my. They're per- permanently. I'm permanently obsessed with this. So I don't think in terms of okay, this will be fixed in a year, or if it's not, okay, I'll give it two years and then it better be fixed. Once one problem seems to sort of align, then there are other ways to to use your energy and focus. So that it, first of all, it's never, I don't think I'll ever be done, finished. Well, like, it's it's uh, It's not so much for me, how do I reach this goal? It's how do I live my life? And how do I uh, make choices and teach and um, not, not give into the despair, which sometimes feels like a smog that settles, like a scrim that you can't see clearly anymore because it's just like especially now, uh, yeah, but so I don't, I don't like, I'm, this is a long roundabout way, Josh, of saying I'm not quite sure I understand your question.
0: <laughs> well, I think what I'm hearing is that you're not, you're not thinking of this as a goal, you're thinking of this is how I live, Yeah. although you, a lot of, the despair that you described, I think I see it in a lot of other people, and they despair in one area, and so they focus on something else, and they just figure someone else will take care of this
1: it feels to me like right now there are people who used to say that more and now they're saying, God damn it. I have to, I have to step forward. Uh I have to be one of the people who says, yes, I'm going to work to fix this, to change this, to move us away from this potential cliff that we're headed towards running over. Excuse my
3: French. Uh, (laughs) RJ, you're nodding a lot. Yeah. I'm just thinking of a couple of things. I mean, the first is that quote, like, if not us, then who, if not now, when, right? And, Maybe I'm I'm a young, bright-eyed senior, ready to take on the world. But I, I just like I, thats how I see a lot of these things, right? Like you—you you can you can complain like many Arabs do in coffee shops in Palestine and with their hookah pipe and their coffee and complain about the politics, or you can go out and do something. And that's that's one way I see it. But also, once your work aligns with your passions, it doesn't matter—at least the way I see it—how long it takes or the long-term plan. But it begins to feel less like work in kind of what you're talking about, your life calling.
2: And then I, I would support that, I, I think if, if I look back I would have been much more cynical about the prospects for the change, for dealing with environmental problems and for dealing with social problems. I would have been more cynical 25 years ago than I am now when conditions are actually much worse both environmentally and socially. And the reason that I'm less cynical is because I've seen time and again when people actually act to do something, that it actually makes a difference to others. So, you know, I think in 1992 when Patagonia had already adopted a mission statement of whose third element was uh, is cause, build the best product, cause no unnecessary harm, use business to inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. We were talking about that in 1991, and very few other people were. But now, what I've seen within the company is people try to change what goes on in the supply chain, develop new materials that create less harm, um, start to work in factories where the labor is fair trade certified and I've seen this spread so that I may not be around in <laughs> I'll be around in 10 years maybe but I won't be around in, I may not be around in 15 or 20 but what I see is a lot of things that are already developing now and if we see a, a little bit more of them that eventually you can marginalize the kinds of forces that we now feel marginalized on the side. If you see this as a, as a wasteful, high-consumption society that is uh, despoiling the environment and we're dealing with uh, conditions of endless war and right? refugees in the, in the Middle East and incredible disparity of income here, That is, does not necessarily have to be the conditions 15 or 20 years from now. And there are a lot of people working as you're working, or as you're working, to change the way we relate to the work we do, which I think is the critical part, is actually the, 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 the kinds of change that we need is more from less from the consumer side than from the producer side, because about 70 percent of the waste is determined in production mm-hmm. not in consumption. And and yet most people don't feel any kind of empowerment or agency to deal with environmental or big social problems at work because they feel they have to do what they're told.
0: Well so when you talk about empowerment, agency, a way of living your life what I'm hearing is that for you there's a reward to this. A, it's a rewarding experience and, and which I think a lot of people don't see that, and so I'm, partly why I'm, I, I'm curious, what is the reward? I mean, you talk about what you do, and is it that you feel joy? Is it you feel? I mean, you said empowerment. I mean, what what's in it for you? For I feel you?
2: engaged, mm-hmm. and I would say that that's also true of, of the of, uh, the people I work with at Patagonia, and that that's their reward is that they bring their whole self to work, they bring their values to work. They don't have to to uh, leave them at the breakfast table and then return to them at night. We've got a guy who runs our um, uh, a lot of our finances who described to me, he, he worked for 10 years at Deloitte. And he said he decided to leave because his seven-year-old daughter is at the dinner table. She was saying, you know, what do you do today? And what he did today was to minimize the payout the BP had to make after the oil spill. And, you know, perfectly technical work for a consulting company. He was not proud to talk about that with his daughter. So um, I think simple engagement. It's not always joyful. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's a royal pain. But but that sense of full engagement uh, is absolutely uh, critical. And I do think that's what motivates people to create change.
3: Um, I, I agree with, um, all of that. I think for me, um, like when we were working in Palestine this past summer through lead Palestine in our work, um, like there was just this incredible feeling of fulfillment, um, where, where your hands and your heart and your mind are all working in sync towards something. Um, and so, I mean, it just kind of came down to a passion for me and, I mean, there are, there are tangibles that, like, we can talk about in terms of, like, measurement and impact of, like, the work that we did that kind of kept me going. But more than anything, it was just kind of, like, this raw feeling that that's hard to put words to. Um, but it's that where, where you feel like you're living a life and doing work uh, beyond yourself. Because I think, I think life is really short. And I think, you know, like, when I, I ask someone, what is the meaning of life? Big question, right? Um, and kind of, kind of jokingly when I asked him, um, and he said, well, life is pretty short, right? So the meaning of life is to live a life where you can live a le- leave a legacy to better the future beyond yourself. Um, and that's kind of how I, I think about it as well. Um, you know, life's short. And so you just got to try and do the best you can to leave a positive, lasting legacy.
1: I'm going to make this a little more selfish than my colleagues. Um, I've lived in New York since 19... I moved here in January of 1982. And I plan to stay five years. And the five years aren't up yet. Because, of course, New York becomes many New Yorks as you your life changes and you live in different places and you're doing different things. And I've come to have a just deep love for this completely exasperating city and part of my project with the department of sanitation initially was and still is how do i help a larger public understand the work of sanitation being behind the truck flinging garbage um dealing with the the castoffs of this city um and how do i help a larger world appreciate the people who do that work and in focusing that way, I get to learn more about my city from a perspective I couldn't have through any other means. When I worked behind the truck, when I worked with sanitation people in Staten Island and the Bronx and Brooklyn and Manhattan, and even when we were in neighborhoods I already knew well. I was seeing them with a completely different eye and a completely through a completely different framework in hearing the perspectives of the people. I was working with, and then when I was wearing the uniform myself, like it was my job, and so I put on the cloaking device that is maintenance uniforms, not just for sanitation, but anybody who's working a maintenance job who has to wear a uniform that says I work maintenance, that's a cloaking device in many ways. Um, All of this let me learn my city better and learn how it's like when you have a beloved and you want to know everything there is about the beloved which I don't mean to sound new agey, but, or spiritual. No, let me retract that. I do mean to sound spiritual because there's not, a, there's not a break between who we are and what is sacred and how we create community and how we choose to honor where we are and who we're with so that your work in Patagonia to take a model that is not profit at all cost, but instead backs up and says, wait, there's a much bigger, deeper, more important context here. That's You're moving into holy territory there, I think. And to do the work you're doing in Palestine, of course, it has a, a profoundly sacred component to it. No less than does trash. And I realize to say that is... Maybe heretical, but um the reward for me to get back to the point of Josh's question, I get to know my beloved better through learning more about the city. I get to know people whose lives I would never have I would never have encountered if I weren't with sanitation. Um I'm frankly jealous of some of the social bonds that sanitation people have the There are friendships that they make in the trenches of the war on grime that uh, are far tighter and more lasting than. Anything I see in the academy, um, I, I wish we had that. I, and I've also seen plenty of times when it, two workers or the superintendent and one of the workers are nose to nose shouting at each other. And by the time the day is over, they're going out for a beer together. And, and I, coming from this world, that's, that's like, wait, you were mad. Aren't you going to hate each other for life? And they're like, what? We had an argument. What's the big deal? It's like, why would we be mad for life? Which again, in the academy, it sometimes is a little it doesn't resolve quite that neatly. So, all of those are the rewards among many others.
0: Now, I had a follow-up question for all of you, for, but I can't help but ask: When you say cloaking device, does it? Does it I, I assume you mean it makes you invisible yeah, yeah. to the public. Yeah, yeah. And and yet, there's a a, a, bond, a familial type bond that happens behind the cloaking device.
1: Well, anyone else who's wearing the cloaking device, you you are bonded. You're all cloaked, and you know you're cloaked, but you're not cloaked to each other.
0: And is it just sanitation workers, or sanitation? Will they also recognize uh, someone on a fire truck and someone driving a well, the bus? Well,
1: they're often literally brothers or cousins. or So the, the four, there are four uniformed, service, uniformed municipal workforces. Um, the New York's bravest, that's the fire department. New York's finest is the police department. New York's boldest is corrections and New York's strongest is Department of Sanitation. So those are the uniform and those are their nicknames and uh, MTA is different because it's state and city so it has a different, I don't know, they're fastest, I don't know what they're, Um, but... uh, Most crowded. Well, most under siege right now. Uh, But yeah, the cloaking device, it's quite quite remarkable. There's a story I tell in my book where I'm part of a crew cleaning up after the West Indian Day Parade on the uh, Labor Day Parade in Brooklyn. And I've got a hand broom, which has the bristles are very coarse. This is an industrial size. It's a very heavy duty broom. And I'm sweeping litter from underneath the, the barricades on the grass median into the curb. But there are people still standing at the barricade. And it's warm weather, so they're in sandals and flip-flops. And if I hit them with my broom, I'm going scra- I'm I'm to hurt them these bristles are quite, they're, they're metal, right? And so I'm standing this far from them, and, I'm, and they're, I'm face to face, and I'm saying excuse me. I'm saying excuse me. I'm right here saying excuse me, and they do not see or hear me. I am invisible until I finally am like, and I got one of their feet, and then they move. <laughs> I only did that once. That was mean. I only did that once. <laughs>
2: I, I think you can tell an awful lot about a society by its garbage. And oh,
1: certainly. It's the archaeology that we create of the moment and send yeah. into the future.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a – in, in Patagonia at one point, we decided to adopt cradle-to-cradle manufacturing practices in which you take your waste and recycle it into new, new fabric, and we did that. And um, what we discovered was that it wasn't nearly the whole story
4: mm-hmm.
2: that if you go backwards, whatever's you know, that, that is m- much more important before that item is t- thrown away to be recycled to, to repair it if it doesn't work. And a lot of things are now made not to be repaired. It's also important if you're not using something to recirculate it so that's all that you know everything that's manufactured costs, nature more than we know how to repay and it also represents an immense amount of human labor and then the final step is there are a lot of things that shouldn't have been made in the first place so there's really not much point in recycling something that never should have been made because you've already put everything into it and that really changed going through that process we still we you know we still send polyester off to be uh, melted down and made into new fiber but it it, it changed
0: the way we think about it so when you guys talk about the I mean fulfillment, deep fulfillment, a sense of greater purpose, beloved engagement, to me, these things connect deeply with what I think of leadership and these emotional awareness and, and things like that, and I feel like a lot of people feel like, yeah, it's nice to work on the environment, but it's, that's separate. I, I really got to get ahead and I you know I don't want to get distracted by these other things, but I feel like you guys have taken the bull by the horns and and is led exactly to what's rewarding and uh, what do you, but maybe I'm behind the times maybe people maybe people are stopping saying that uh, do you hear that if so what do you say to people like that or what do you say to that perspective
1: the perspective of it's it's this thing over here that I'll get to later
0: or that's... yeah I'll get to later or it's a distraction from what really what will get me ahead in life I I. I hear that, but I don't want to say that, I mean, maybe you guys don't hear that, but if you do, or you hear something like that, how do you feel about that? How, how do you respond to it? I
2: hear it from time to time, especially the context in which I hear it is, because I, I do a lot of work advising people who are interested in becoming B corps. yeah I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, um, A movement of businesses that uh, write their most deeply held values into their business charter and, and submit themselves to a, a biannual assessment of their practices. And I often hear, oh, well, you know, what size should I be when I become a Bitcoin? Or should I go out and I become X profitable, and then go ahead and go through that process, or give to 1% for the planet? And I, I, I tell them, you should start from the beginning. Because it's much easier, if you're giving 1% to environmental causes, it's much easier to start when you from nothing. <laughs> one percent of a dollar than it is to suddenly become a five million dollar company and then decide, oh, where am I going to get that $5,000? dollars i got to take it from someplace else. Plus, I've got to then persuade my employees that this is a virtue, or I may have to persuade my investors, or I may have to justify this to customers. But if you start from the beginning, that you understand this is a part, X, X, and X is a part of who we are as a business and a part of our purpose as a group of people, then it's much easier to build on that than to kind of uh, tack it on later. We speak from experience, because Patagonia, for a lot of it, tacked it on later. Mm
0: -hmm. I was going to ask you, you, what you described before wasn't that? So you're saying how to, you're sharing what you've learned from experience, not to make the mistakes, to make better mistakes than you guys made.
2: Yeah, and also to, I mean, there were certain things that were with us from the beginning, which was this love of wilderness and, and the desire to protect wild places. But things that we learned about our supply chain or things that we learned about how we should treat people in the labor chain really did come later on. And it's much harder, very difficult to um, change direction. And, and, and it feels riskier. To me, you, the more you do, the more you, you behave with purpose from the beginning, you start to get confidence from your actions. And things that are not real risks feel like they're possible whereas if you don't do that for a company that's behaving conventionally and then they decide to take a move that it feels risky to them because they don't have the confidence they don't have the experience they don't have the cultural confidence how to take a move
0: well you guys have made really big moves i mean really big moves like bet the company type things
2: but they didn't feel like bet the company to us. They looked like bet the company to outsiders. But to us, there were maybe a couple of things. But for the most part, it, we had done enough that we said, okay, this we we can we we can pull this off. Or, in the case where we bet the farm, like switching entirely to organic cotton, it was if we can't make this change, we're getting out of sportsman. We've continued to make rainwear and we've continued to make fleece, but but we do not want to be involved with cotton that's grown with intense chemicals.
0: And was is there something special about you guys, or maybe there was something about your company existed in a space where strategically you could do things that others couldn't, or could any company do what you guys did? Any company
2: could. But, but again, what you'd have to do is you'd have to have, um, uh, it's just, it's like the, the culture of the sanitation workers they all, you know, what would look like a big risk for me to take a garbage can on my back or to, to, to go into a crowd and work with a broom doesn't look like such a, a risk to somebody who's been doing that for a while and, and who understands how to, how to move with that. So you have to develop competency.
3: Um, yeah, I, I don't know how much I could speak to the real direct specifics of the question, but I think a lot of it comes down to like this idea of self-awareness, right? And, and better understanding yourself, your, your strengths, your weaknesses, um, like the way that you perceive things and the way that you handle different emotions and in that moment and uh, like total self-awareness and mindfulness really um, of, of your space, either in interactions with other people, with the environment, um, it, with your work. Um, and I, and I think that um, I mean that's like an age-old practice, right? I mean, there it, it goes back to um, all kinds of historical figures that really have employed mindfulness and self-awareness as a means to promote and improve their leadership. But I think in today's society, we're looking for a lot of quick fixes, whether it's on your phone, you know, like instant gratification is like a huge just thing now. Um, but whereas self-awareness and mindfulness it's not necessarily an instant gratification thing. And, and that self-improvement isn't so... It really forces you to slow down, almost inherently. Um, but in a society that's only speeding up, it's almost counterintuitive to what we're used to. But I would say, just in terms of promoting a better culture, either within like an organization like Lead Palestine or the Muslim Students Association, I would say that we found the best results when we have slowed down, when we've taken that step back to take a breath and to really like take account of what's the situation and and to better understand ourselves on an individual level, on an organizational level, and our relationship to the communities that we serve.
1: On the question of separation, it's an illusion. We're deeply ingrained in understanding that things are separate and we're separate from each other and we're separate from the street and we're separate from everything, but that's not true. And Framed around the question of environmental issues, part of my, one of my life goals is to help make clear that an an environmental concern is not a separate thing that we can worry about later. Um, When I teach Introduction to Environmental Studies, it's a class that some students take because they're interested. They may have studied it in high school a little bit, Uh, but at least half the class are people who are taking it because it fulfills a, a requirement, so might as well get it out of the way. And I love that because this is my chance to kind of convert them, to kind of help them understand that whatever they study, having clean water and clean air and justice around who has access to clean water and clean air, those are, if those questions, if those issues are tangled and not, if, if there is injustice around those very simple um, necessities of life; everything else becomes uh, very um, troubled, and everything else becomes far more difficult than it should be. Uh, both that can be both individually, but also structurally and, and socially. I had a class in graduate school with a uh, uh, at Union Theological Seminary. I, I, I was a student at Columbia, but there's a sort of sister relationship with UTS, and this was a, a theologian from Germany named Dorothe Zola who was ferocious and stern and was basically teaching us how uh, Christian theology is all about starting the revolution. And um, at the very end of the semester, we each had to do a presentation. So with a couple of students, we decided to do a presentation about the theology of garbage. As I say, it's been a lifelong passion. And we actually had the class meet in the chapel and they collected uh, litter, and it's a relatively clean neighborhood, but we were impressed with the quantities of litter that they managed to collect. And then we had them dump it on the floor of the chapel, which was very hard for some of them. Some of them were already training for their own work as pastors and, and priests and whatnot. Um, and when we were all done, Dorotezola said to us, you know, I, I understand better now. After the revolution, we will have to pay attention to the environment. And I leapt up and I said, no, no, it is the revolution. It, it's not after, there is no after if you don't attend to this right now, right now. One did not speak that way to Dorothea Zola, she was a bit startled at my like, ah, um, but she, I, I don't know if she got it, but that she even thought, yeah, after, the, well, then we will clean things up. Like, no, 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 no. Right now, right now. And frankly, climate change being what it is, I assign my students, they have to have read by tomorrow an essay from last November's New Yorker by Elizabeth Colbert about um, carbon sequestration and climate change. And um, (laughs) the the most compelling part of that essay for me, in part, is where she talks about, yeah, the scientists say, well, yeah, so all these things have to happen and then a little magic. And then maybe we'll be okay. We don't, like we really are headed off a cliff sooner rather than later if we don't attend to the environmental concerns of the moment. So the idea that there's a separation, no, there is none. So my goal, how do I help make clear there's no separation?
0: Yeah. One of my questions was to ask uh, what hurdles you guys have faced and how you've overcome them. But the passion that I hear seems to be about the hurdles, although it's also these frustrations when you jump up and you're like, no.
2: The hurdles are two-faced. So
0: uh-huh. they're, they're also, I mean, it's
2: interesting because when I talk to business people, if you're, if you're coming from a very conservative stance in business, any kind of social or environmental improvement is viewed as a constraint
4: mm-hmm.
2: on, on your activity and possibly on your profits.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: When in fact, if you don't see it that way, you see it as opportunities for innovation, because if I have to clean, if I feel that I have to clean up my supply chain, and I'm, I have to clean up my supply chain not because I want to be innovative and 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 knock my competition out, but when I do clean up my supply chain, I have to do the kind of thinking that actually does help the company be innovative and help the company succeed in the market, and in that case, as a, as a human being. I'm engaged fully. I've got this project to make the best, the best possible rain jacket. And what in, in, in addressing environmental and social concerns not as constraints but as necessities and as things that I want to be engaged in, it makes a huge difference for the actual products that the company makes.
0: So what, what they're seeing as a hurdle, you're seeing as opportunity and, and a way to act on your values, and then their attitudes are maybe the hurdle. I mean that's something that must be frustrating.
2: Well, well, well I, I know, think it's mean. more frustrating in other companies. I think the the, the French uh, woman. I, I think a lot of people. If you're if you are a sustainable working in a sustainability department um, in a large uh, publicly held corporation, there's often this question of, "Okay, I care about this, but um, I have to give up," you know. And the, the next person who cares about this is, is, is uh, five uh, subsidiaries away from me. And, um, and there, for people who are working in, specifically for your, for your question, there I think you have to work on, on smaller projects and develop that can succeed and develop a network of comrades and a, a network of people who feel the way you do and also help build a larger culture around it. And then that expands, and eventually, the people who are, this is Daniel Goleman pointed this out in emotional or ecological intelligence, eventually the people who you feel marginalized by become marginalized, uh, because they're the last people in the company, because everybody else understands that if you, when you undertake these measures, um, you achieve certain successes, and it also engages employees, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Hurdles? <clears throat>
3: um, I think I don't really think about them too much usually. I mean, they they of course they happen, but the best part about the hurdles like when you get over it, um, and when you when you look back and you're like just to oh no that you overcame it is such a high. It's such a high, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't. Know, it, it's it's fun almost. Huh there's not much more to it.
0: Do you always feel that way or did that come through overcoming hurdles or something like oh, that?
3: No, I mean, the moment when you, when you're flying over the hurdle and you don't know <laughs> if you're going to land, it's terrifying. <laughs> right. Um, and each time, especially like the bigger the hurdles get and the, the longer your, your jump gets to that hurdle. Um, you know, that it, it gets harder and harder each time, but, um, you know, each time you kind of get a little better and better and you learn things along the way. Um, and so while they get more challenging, you just kind of build this like resource belt that makes them a little bit better. Um, so that's how I see it.
0: I'm, I'm curious, now you're smiling when you're saying it, and people are laughing. And you're saying it's, it, it's harder, and they're longer. How does it feel when you, because many of us are going to face hurdles, and a lot of people are like, we, we hear you saying it and it's laughing, but then we're in the moment, we're like, oh, this is really hard. I remember him laughing. I'm not laughing now. When it's in the moment, what does it feel like?
3: And uh, I mean, on just like a pure like physiological level, I mean, when, when you're stressed out and, and you're sweating and your, your face is all hot and you, you can't think straight and everyone pisses you off and like everything is just going bad. And, um, you just, you're like, why God, why me right now? You know, why, why do I have to care or why this happened to me or why did this go wrong? Um, and it, it, it feels like a little bit like you're out of control. Um, but that's kind of where, I mean, you know, truthfully, I'm, I'm a, I'm a religious, I'm a, I'm a very religious person. So for me, that's kind of when I put my faith in the big guy upstairs and I say, you know, help me out a little bit. Um, and again, usually that results to me praying. Um, practice of mindfulness and taking that deep breath and just better analyzing the situation. Um, And once you kind of, you know, put your ducks in a row and take account of the situation in that moment, usually you realize it's not as bad as it feels like it is.
0: Yeah, the way you say it, um, next time that I'm going through that, I'm going to write you. I'm going to be like, hey, Archie, (laughs) it's just like you described, or it's slightly different. Yeah, a little bit. Robin?
1: Uh, We're talking about hurdles?
0: Yeah, or, I mean, what hurdles you faced, or how you look at it, if it's different than, is it, because I feel like you're describing things that other people describe as hurdles, but you sound enthusiastic, and uh, I don't know what the right word is, but it doesn't sound like you're, like, shying away from them.
1: Oh, I do sometimes. It, it, you know, sometimes you get up and you're like, no, no, I, mm-hmm. no, no.
3: You choose your battles.
1: You have to choose yeah. your battles, and sometimes you have to sit down and just wait, let the battle pause, and then resume it again. Yeah, the, a 24-7 effort will burn you out really quickly. And then what? Then you're just a tired shell of an old person. (laughs) Which is not how I want to end up. Um, May I ask a question? So if I can ask you, Vince, and this, forgive me ahead of time because this is a question out of ignorance, Um, a two-part question. Am I correct that it is the law in the United States that a company must generate profit For its shareholders,
2: it's not correct.
1: It's not correct. Good. So, where is that? Is that a privately held company has to do that, as opposed to a publicly held company? Or, underneath the question is, can can rules about relationships between shareholders and a corporate entity be written in such a way that environmental well-being or the labor conditions in which the supply chain is, is created or those kinds of variables can be the priority and profit is part of the picture but not the number one at all costs we're going to go after profit, everything else be damned.
2: Yeah, it's a. Um, f- first of all there's privately held companies, uh, those traded on the stock market there are only 3,771 in the United States, and there are 100,000, at least, uh, privately held companies that are not traded on the New York Stock Exchange. Oh, in interesting. Day. Okay. And privately held companies that are traded are subject to rid- fiduciary rules that uh, private companies are, are not, and there's a, there is, I actually have a the, the, a, a great book has been written kind of the the, the stockholder myth I, I think is, is the title um, that somehow that case law uh, business law supports this notion that um, uh, businesses are obligated to primarily answer the needs of their shareholders this is actually not really true
4: hmm.
2: but it is the main the um, Dictum taught in the finance departments of business schools, and it is a theory developed by Milton Friedman that was published in the New York Times Sunday Magazine in 1971, that the, pri- the shareholder primacy, that the, the the sole goal of a corporation is to uh, maximize stock value, and that has beca- that became very widely accepted. It wasn't accepted beforehand. If you took, if you went to General Mills or you went to uh, 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 General Electric or you went to Johnson and Johnson in 1960, they would have said yes. The excellence of our company is de- is determined by our product, by our financial health, by our relationships with our communities, our employees, and our customers. But all that went aside. But there's a big movement now, kind of a return to stakeholder, call it stakeholder capitalism, in which All of those elements, community, employees, customers, become important again, and and we would add the environment also has to be an important constituent of any business because the environment is strongly affected by the way businesses behave. But the B Corp movement is also an indication, uh, a
0: representation of of that movement.
1: That's very helpful. Thank you. And I didn't mean to hijack the conversation, but...
0: not all. I, I'm going to use that actually to segue to... Uh, I mean, I I want to keep asking questions, but I also want to get, take questions from the audience. And please speak up. If I could
4: just add as well, from the standpoint of sustainability, because there are more and more um, regulations that govern supply chains that pose a risk to companies, sustainability... Um, Sometimes they are cultivated as a risk mitigation tool, not so much from the, I care about the environment, however, I do care about shareholder and stakeholder value, and we want to mitigate the risk of having a large fine become a liability somewhere in the future that's undefinable that could potentially affect our stock prices. So that's another... Kind of layer of sustainability at a supply chain, a large
2: corporation. Of investors are putting pressure. Institutional investors right. and uh, the Catholic Church, the uh, CalPerg, the, the big pension fund in, in California. These investors look at inve- it's, it, companies are not reporting. Their environmental liabilities, and so you know the companies, the the investors who got burned in BP when its stock got cut in half after that spill, they want to make sure that they are protected in in the in the future that they are actually getting the information they need to make an investment. But that's only a part of it. The other part of it is, good God, what's happening to the world, and what are you what are you doing uh, uh, to address it? Um.
4: About the population, how does that go towards your issue with waste? And there seems to be way too many people on this planet are being born and growing and growing. Should, is that what causing also the growth of waste and growth of issues between people, etc.?
1: I I don't think population by itself can. I don't. I think it's far too complex to say yeah, we have too many people. If we had fewer people, we would have less waste and fewer conflicts. We've certainly had conflicts since we <laughs> since we came down from the trees and knew how to pick up a stick. We've had conflicts, right? Um, in terms of waste, there have been cultures in the past that were that matched us, and by us I mean sort of global Western culture, uh, to put a broad gloss on it. Um, supposedly the the Mayan civilization was so wasteful um, an archaeologist colleague of mine said it's as if you throw out the Cadillac when the ashtray is dirty so it, it we're not the only culture to be quite so uh, pornographically engaged in waste um, and I don't I don't think it's just because of population like numbers of people um, there are ways in which we have been deeply enculturated to not look b- behind us or ahead of us. So either what came before or what's going to happen next when I let go of this thing, this object, this... Like everything around us is temporary. It, we may um, not live to see when this building crumbles as a ruin, as it will some in some distant millennial moment. Um, but... Uh, I think, I think distribution of resources and access to things like arable land and potable water, regardless of the population size, although population size can stress those um, resources, of course, but just the, there are some, there's some analysis that says we have plenty of land and we have plenty of know-how to feed the whole world. With, with, with leftovers for seconds, if you want to come back for seconds. Uh, but, but that's not how we're using the technology, that's not how the agriculture is being, um, sort of large-scale agriculture is being deployed. Um, so that's a long-winded answer to say, I think it's too simple to just say there are too many people and that's the cause of all these problems.
2: The, the other complication, if you, if you look at, so when I started work, um, world population was about uh, four and a half billion. And now it's uh, seven, um, but the size of the economy has increased by uh, five, five hundred percent. So the population hasn't quite doubled, but the the size of the economy, including the number of goods that we make and throw away and, and dispose of, and those those twin activities, population growth and and uh, higher consumption of uh, 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 things that we do throw away, has has made a big difference on the environment in terms of polluting rivers uh, and turning uh, soil to sand and ocean acidification.
1: They've done studies about how do you limit family size? How do you encourage family size to be smaller? And one of the most uniformly and universally successful ways to do that is to teach women to read. Literacy for girls and women has a direct consequence of smaller family sizes yeah. Oh, which is, yeah
2: paul hawken uh, edited a book called drawdown which uh, shows about a hundred over a hundred technologies that we that can be used to actually not just reduce the amount of carbon we're emitting but suck it back into the ground and um he thought electric cars was going to be like five or six or something and electric cars was 40 and educating women was number six um and, and and population increase is leveling off precisely because having a lot of kids except on a farm doesn't make any sense. Mm. So as countries industrialize the number of – even in Bangladesh, one of the poorest countries on, on the earth, the rate of population increase has gone – people are having two kids or three kids, not, not more, and they're living longer. I don't know. It's, a, it's such a complicated question because it depends on on the fuel that's being used. I mean, a lot, for instance, in India, a lot of factories are are fueled by wood, which is an extraordinarily um, uh, polluting uh, source, and a lot by coal. So really, it, it, it's it's it, that's a very complicated question. In general, I think Lester Brown, the World Resources Institute, they looked at this a while ago, and they said that overall humanity we're using we're consuming the resources of one and a half planets on the planet we have but in the in the u.s. it's somewhere between five and seven planets and um, in Europe is something like three it raises um, there are a lot of questions about equity in development and I think one of the things has actually been very useful um, Aside In the same year that the Paris Agreement came to, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, I think is a very interesting way to look at what makes for uh, community health and economic health anywhere in the world, not just in a developing country or not just in a very developed country, and to look at what, what, what is what is economic and social and environmental health look like and what do we need to do to create those things in the place we live.
0: If you've listened this far you found value in this panel we're already working on future panels if you would like a panel at your place of school or work or community let me know at spodak.net or go to joshaspodek.com and find how to reach me there. We're happy to work with you to support you this is what we want to do more of and we're happy to work with people who want to do more of it too. Does hearing leaders acting on their values make you think of yours? Nothing will make you feel better than acting on them. Value means better. Acting on your values means improving your life. Committing publicly helps many people and builds community too. If you want, click on Commit to a Personal Challenge to share what you do with this community. You'll be a leader among leaders. We're more than a podcast. We're a movement to share how acting on environmental values means fun, joy, growth, and so on, not sacrifice or deprivation. If you want to join or help, contact me at josh.spodak.net or at joshuaspodak.com slash podcast. You'll grow as a leader, you'll enjoy yourself, and the world and your communities will thank you for it.